if everyone could stand for uh, the reading of God's word. This is uh, selected uh, portions of uh, Daniel 2. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his mind was troubled. So the king summoned the astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. The astrologers answered, tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. The king replied, if you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I'll have you cut into pieces. The astrologers answered, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. This made the king so angry that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. When Ariok had gone out to put to death the wise men, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom intact. He asked, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Ariok then explained the matter. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness. I thank and praise you. You have given me wisdom. You have made known to me what we asked of you. Ariok took Daniel to the king and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell a king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no wise man can explain to the king the mystery, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Your dream and the visions are these. The revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. This mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else, but so that your majesty may understand. <clears throat> Before you stood an enormous statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, and its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken into pieces and became like chaff. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and beasts and birds, 
you are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. The people will be a mixture and will not remain united. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it will, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell before Daniel and said, Surely your God is the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at royal court. This is God's word. You may be seated. Dear Heavenly Father, how wonderful, how marvelous, how at times mysterious your word is. We thank you, Lord, that you reveal to us what is yet to come. And um, we can have the assurance um, of your word in this promise that you've given us this morning. Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. So believe it or not, um, we are preaching through um, the book of Daniel. Our hope is to preach through an entire chapter each week. That was actually about half of Daniel chapter 2. So if you thought that was long, it wasn't nearly as long as it, as it actually is. I encourage and invite you to go back and read the chapter in, in full. Um, it's, it's a wonderful chapter in God's word. Uh, Daniel and his three friends have uh, proven themselves faithful. We saw this last week when they were refused to eat the um, king's um, delicacies and rather to identify themselves with the nation of Israel um, in their exile and poverty. The nation of Israel, as you recall, is an, ex is an exile. After they had disobeyed the law of God, God had, had brought discipline upon them by sending the nation of Babylon under the leadership of King Nebuchadnezzar. And basically, Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem, um, destroyed the temple, and brought many of the Israelites into Babylon as slaves. So Daniel and his friends, rather than, they, were, they got recruited, you recall, because of their intelligence and their good looks and all this, into the, the, the king's inner court, and they refused to identify with the Babylonians, and rather they maintained their identification with the God of Israel. So we saw this last week in, in chapter 1, and now in chapter 2, they're next in the noose. Here, the, the, the king has this dream that no one can interpret, and he decides, because he's in a, in a tiff and in a rage, that he's just going to kill all of the wise men. He's going to execute all of them, of which Daniel and his three friends are one. So they're in trouble. 
They're in the second year, the, our text says, they're in the, in the second year of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign. So he's still kind of new to the throne. And he's already grumpy and bitter in his position. <laughs> um, so they would have spent a little bit of time in Babylon by now. They would have known people and known the king. They were building reputations as people that are wise. Daniel, of course, um, when he heard this harrowing news about the king's decree to kill all the wise men, he says, let me talk to him. Apparently he had a relationship with the king already as someone who was wise because the king let him do this. But verse 4 is actually really important um, and extremely interesting. Have you ever seen um, a movie that was on, they were advertising for a certain movie and were so really excited to see the movie. It seemed just really interesting, dramatic, exciting, adventurous, whatever. You really wanted to see it, and then you, you rent it or you go to you know, the movie theater or whatnot, and you sit down, you turn it on, and then all of a sudden you realize, oh shoot, this thing is in a foreign language. I'm going to be reading this the whole, I didn't realize that. Isn't that annoying? So it is for me at least. I'm like, okay, I could have just read the book. You know, now I can't watch anything that's going on, and i got to read the whole thing in the subtitles uh, below. Um, I've, I've been to movies that are kind of back and forth. They're in, set in different places where sometimes they're speaking in German and sometimes in English, and it's kind of back and forth to hearing my own language and also hearing a different language, and when we hear that different language, we have to read. Now, something is sort of happening in the book of Daniel like this that we actually lose because it was all translated for us into English. As, as some of you might know, the Bible was translated um, into English from basically two languages, Greek and Hebrew. But there's a small section of the Old Testament that's written in Aramaic, and this is one of them. So you might have heard from time to time the Bible is written in Greek, Hebrew, and a little bit in Aramaic. Well, this is, this is that section that is often talked about. There are other little places throughout the Bible too, but most of it is right here. It says in verse 4, then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. Now you, you, um, you might have seen that, we read that, but we, we don't really see it actually happening because all of it's in English for us. But what happens in the original text, it actually changes from Hebrew into Aramaic in this verse. Um, the entire section of chapter 2, verse 4, through chapter 7 is all written in Aramaic rather than Hebrew, which, which should be a curious thing to us because in our minds we, we think that the Bible, the Old Testament in particular, was written to the nation of Israel. So we would just expect all of it to be written in Hebrew. Most of the Bible is written, in, most of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. Now Aramaic it was basically uh, a sort of international language at, at the time. It's a time, it's, it's a language that everyone would have known. Um, as, as time goes on, like the first century BC, Alexander the Great comes and he conquers, and Greek became sort of the international language. Now, English is the international language. Isn't that true? Most places in the world, they will teach young people English. Um, English-speaking countries don't really learn any other language. They're not, they're not really exposed to it as much, simply because we already know what is the international language. So Aramaic is the interna international language. So all of a sudden we have sort of like this abrupt in interruption. Imagine watching a movie and the first 20 minutes is in English, the second hour is in Spanish, and then it goes back to English um, for, the, for the last hour. It kind of jumps in, in chapter 8, it goes back to Hebrew. Now the shift in language is important 
not only to understand the book of Daniel, but also it's an important key to understanding the entire Bible, to understand why this happens. Daniel chapter 2 through 7 is uniquely interested in reminding not just the nation of Israel that God has a plan for them, but he has a plan for the nations too. You see, God, in other words, in Scripture, speaks to us as people who, who we are by faith in Jesus Christ, but the Bible isn't just written to his people, it's written to the lost as well. It's written to those who remain in darkness because God has a purpose and a plan for them too. So Daniel 2-7 through 7 is uniquely interested in speaking not to God's people, but to the nations. It's a message for those that are lost and remain lost. So this morning, in chapter 2 of Daniel, we're going to learn a little bit more about how God reveals his secrets and his purpose and his will to those who do not yet know him, but also what that purpose is. It's a really fascinating story. I hope that um, it will encourage your faith this morning. In Daniel chapter 2, God reveals this purpose through a notorious pagan despot. This guy is a maniac. You, you just saw a little bit into that window. He asked, would you please tell me the dream and interpret it? And his wise men, people who thought like we're on his good side, people that were Babylonians, said, hey, that's kind of tough. And he says, if you don't do it, you're dead. So this guy's got a few screws loose. He's not normal, right? But if you observe his character, he is projecting strength when he's actually very weak and very insecure. And that's the first thing that we have to know about Daniel chapter 2. God's purpose includes the unwilling because it includes Nebuchadnezzar, who never was looking for him to begin with and wasn't a guy that we'd ever think God would be looking for either. The God's will, that's the first thing I'd like to say and point out about chapter 2. God's will includes the unwilling. Verses 1 through 13 tell of Nebuchadnezzar's recurring dream, and it scared him to death because in verse 1 and verse 3 it says this, his mind was troubled and his spirit was anxious. This man was leader of the largest and most powerful and wealthiest nation on earth but he was a tr troubled, weak, anxious little boy. We've never seen that in our world leaders, have we? Let's, not, let's just move on real quick, okay? Um, his earthly authority, and I hear this, please. His earthly authority, his rank, his possessions, all that he had, did not remove his own frailty. So we need to ask the, that, a question about us. Does the, the stuff that we pull off in life make us strong, happy people? Usually not. He usually leaves us wanting. So before we're a little bit hard on King Neb, let's remember that this is the story of all of us. So many of us achieve greatness. But when we achieve, we achieve it, we find that we're just as lost and just confused and just as fragile as we were before. So that in our own minds, we remain small, uninteresting, and very fragile. So God comes to this king who has no earthly reason to be afraid of anything but is, he comes to this king in his sleep, while he's sleeping. And he gives him, if you read the text carefully, he, he gives him basically what is a recurring nightmare. Anyone ever had one of those? I had a dream that a cheeseburger was eating me. 
it's not true. <laughs> so he gives this king a recurring nightmare. And so anxious was he to find out what this dream meant that he was literally threatening the lives of all of his council that was supposed to be there to give him help and wisdom. He was so anxious that he demanded that his magicians and soothsayers and astrologers and all these people would interpret, not only interpret what the dream meant, but he wanted to tell them what the dream was to begin with. He didn't want them making something up, right? Which we could all do. He didn't trust these wise men. He didn't want them inventing some meaning. So under the threat of death, they were to tell the dream and the meeting. And this is what, this is what they say. He says, they say, oh, king, there is no one on earth who can do what you ask. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And they just, in that one sentence, just outlined why God was doing this for Nebuchadnezzar. Because God wanted it to be clear that his gods were no gods at all, and that there was only one God of heaven and earth, and that God was Daniel's God. So leave your false gods and come to the true one, right? And Nebuchadnezzar, when he hears this, that no one can reveal it to the king except to the gods, his response basically was fear and fury, two Fs, fear and fury. He was terrified and he was furious. One of the most famous kings of all time, do you know that King Nebuchadnezzar built one of the seven wonders of the ancient world? the Hanging Towers of Babylon. Have you ever heard of this? This guy was nuts, but he was brilliant at the same time, which sometimes those two come hand in hand, don't they? One of the most powerful leaders, one of the most brilliant creative minds that our earth has known is furious and afraid of a dream. And why is he afraid of the dream? Not because it was scary, but because he came to realize that he was not God, and the people that he trusted around him weren't either. There is no one on earth who can do this but the gods. No one can re reveal it to you except God alone. Only his, so his own people tell him, listen, only God can do this. And neither you nor I are him. <clears throat> Friends, it is devastating when we learn that the things that we thought were strong are actually weak. The things that we relied on to make us happy and to fulfill our own purpose in life actually is weak tea and can't do a thing for us. We worshiped, we put it in God's place, we finally got what we've been looking for all of our lives and then it can't accomplish a thing for us. So you know what we do? We end up hating that thing. The thing that we loved, the thing that we worshiped, that which we passionately pursued becomes the object of our own venom. Our life goals are simply mirages in the desert. They lead us to water that is actually not water. It's sand. It's dry. So that what we formerly loved, we now hate. Oh, how many times has this perhaps happened to you, friend, in your life? We're driven to marriage only, only to wind up hating our spouse. We're driven to work and accomplishment and success only to wind up hating our boss and our career. Driven to power only to despise its fruitless return. Because none of those things are God. We thought they were, but they're not. Friends, if you worship anything but God, you'll end up hating the thing that you formerly worshipped. 
Nebuchadnezzar made the mistake we all make. He was unwilling for God to be God and Lord of his life. He, he wanted to be that which was divine. He wanted to control the divine. And when he realized he couldn't do it because he wasn't him, he was furious and he was afraid. So what God's teaching him and us is that our kingdoms might be great in our eyes, our ideas, our purpose might be, we, we might think they're wonderful, but they're actually small and frail. Our kingdoms come to an end. They're destroyed. They're crushed. They're blown away like, a ch like the chaff, and his kingdom lives forever. So which one are we living for? You see, that's the question. That's the question he's asking Nebuchadnezzar, as we'll see as we continue. <clears throat> Yet God's purpose, in spite of this, includes those that are far from him, those that are never looking for him to begin with. God shows up in an angry, violent man's dreams because he loves him. At the height of, his, of the king's anger and fear, an order is issued to execute the wise men. And at this, God summons Daniel. So God's will and purpose is communicated through this violent man's dreams, but then it, it is revealed to, it is interpreted to Daniel, who is humble. So Nebuchadnezzar is set up, uh, set up as this proud, powerful king who's got everything, yet he's afraid and he's got nothing, and Daniel is this weak slave who ends up being the one who's got all the wisdom of God behind him. So God's will is also revealed to the humble. Nebuchadnezzar symbolizes those that remain in darkness, the discomfort and unsettled fear that people like Nebuchadnezzar know that we once knew actually is a, is a really a gift of God's grace. He makes us unhappy with those things which are not God's because if we were happy with them, we'd never think that there was something beyond them. Does that make sense? He doesn't want us satisfied with this world when, we know, when he knows it'll only bring further death. So he makes us uncomfortable with the false gods that we worship in life. And it gets us seeking and searching for answers. And it's then, in, in the, the, the people around us that are lost and fallen and in confusion, God moves his humble servants to be interpreters for them. And this was Daniel's role. Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might underline, interpret, the dream for him. Friends, God has called his people, you and I, if you know him by grace through faith, to be interpreters of the dreams of those lost around us. And I'll explain what I mean in a moment. Daniel was sent to someone lost in darkness because his heart was confused and disturbed and God wanted to explain what was happening. He wanted to interpret what was going on in his heart because he loved Nebuchadnezzar. And friends, the world is filled with lost people who are in the same exact place. And we, as God's people, are meant to reveal and interpret the source of their insecurity. We're called to remind people that they too are restless, not because they need to discover what their real gender is, or discover what their sexual preference is, or, so, or, or they need to get married or have children or become a lawyer and so on. You see, this isn't the way to fix the insecurity of our own hearts. What we need to is interpret that insecurity, the purpose that it's there according to the Christian and according to scripture is because we're far from God and only God can satisfy that lonely heart. 
So God's people interpret the dreams, quote unquote, of those lost around us because we are called to interpret the true source of that insecurity of all people we know. In other words, God has put you on mission, friends, just like Daniel, to help interpret the trouble of man's heart, to help them know why it's there, just as Daniel did. This interpreter of dreams, Daniel, he's not a great man in a worldly sense. He's not rich and powerful, right? He's actually a slave. Yet there's a king seeking his help. That's a recurring theme in the Bible, if you recall, right? Think of, think of Joseph. Think of Nehemiah. Think of Esther. Very small people, very insignificant people, risen up to, give, to be given the attention of all the potentates of their day. John the Baptist somehow gets the ear of the king of Israel. This small man who might have smelled a little bit and was eating locusts, bugs for dinner. How on earth does that guy end up in the royal court? You see, friends, God reveals his will through the weak and humble who know that without him, they're nothing. So Nebuchadnezzar seeks Daniel. Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the earth in Matthew chapter 5. And Daniel proves his humility, not simply because he's a slave. You know, you can be a proud slave. You can be an arrogant slave. You can be angry at the world and think you deserved everything but all the trouble that you've been given. The reason Daniel proves his humility is because of the way that he lived his life. What was the quality, the content of his heart? He didn't plot a coup. He didn't win a debate. He didn't become an angry blogger, right? What does he do with this crazy king who, who's threatening his own life? He prays. He stops and he gets his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he prays. Verse 17, then Daniel explained the matter to his friends and he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven. Isn't that interesting? Daniel's asking God for mercy. Mercy is undeserved favor. Like it's, it's, for, it's almost like forgiveness. What did Daniel do wrong? He didn't do nothing wrong. This king did it wrong. But Daniel knows that he's guilty too. He's under sin too. And unless God is merciful, not only is his life threatened, but his eternal life is threatened. He needs God to be merciful. That's something that he knew to be true that Nebuchadnezzar just didn't. He also knew that he didn't have the wisdom to know and interpret this dream. He needed God to do it. This mystery, it says in our text, has been revealed to me not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else. Isn't that an amazing statement? God reveals this dream to Nebuchadnezzar, as, uh, excuse me, to Daniel as he prays, and he reveals the, the, um, the interpretation of the dream. God reveals the interpretation of the dream to Daniel. He goes to Nebuchadnezzar and he says, I got the answer for you. And by the way, it's not because I'm great. It's because God's great. What a great opportunity for anyone to just puff themselves up. Isn't that true? Well, you know, King Nebuchadnezzar, you're just really lucky right now to have me. 
because I'm just so brilliant and smart. And by the way, you already said I was good looking. That's why I'm here. So you're just a lucky man. He is taking Nebuchadnezzar's eyes off of Daniel and putting them on the Lord. And friends, any good Christian, any good teacher, any good Christian leader is going to do the same thing. This is not about me, and it's not about you, and it's about the Lord that we serve. He can do it. <clears throat> so this humility, by the way, is why the Spirit of the Lord was on him. Isaiah chapter 11 reads, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And this is Daniel in this context. While Nebuchadnezzar feared his own frailty, the uncertainty of life, Daniel feared the Lord. Daniel's life was characterized by wisdom in verse 14. It says, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. And then in chapter 9, we read last week, the king talked with them and found none equal um, to Daniel. So friends, Daniel was wise, but only because he was humble, only because God had revealed God's wisdom to Daniel. Daniel was a humble man before he was a wise man because he was a man of prayer and a man, and a man of worship. Daniel didn't reveal, reveal mysteries. God reveals mysteries. Friends, if your life seems mysterious right now, you don't need me. You don't even need the people around you. You need, the, you need God's word. And the only way that I can help you in life is not by my wisdom. It's by relaying God's word to you. The, God's word has the power to untie those mysterious knots that are in your soul, to reveal his purpose and plan for your life too. <clears throat> there is a God in heaven, it says, who reveals mysteries. Daniel owned his humanness and depended on God as a man of prayer and worship. And when he was in danger, he prayed. And when God revealed the dream to him, he prayed again. <laughs> he worshiped God. Daniel couldn't do it, God could. And that was his secret in life. You want to live a happy life, a long life, one with joy? You get that principle down, and that, that, will, that will help you more than any other drug or self-help book or anything like this. You can't do it, God can. You just learn that, drill it into yourself, and it will transform you. Daniel couldn't, God could. That was his secret of his power, of his strength, and Nebuchadnezzar shrunk and Daniel grew, right? God remains gracious. He says to Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, this was revealed to me by God, so that your majesty might understand. God loves those who do not love him. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? I don't love people that love me. Right? Get out of my way. I'm hungry. God loves people that don't want anything to do with him, that don't even believe, with him, believe in him. This mystery was revealed to me so that your majesty might understand. Friends, the mystery of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ has been revealed to us so that we can go to people that aren't even looking for God to reveal God to them. Isn't that great news? And then God says, okay, Nebuchadnezzar, here's my purpose. Here's my will. I'm revealing it to you through this little man, Daniel. He has a dream involving an enormous and beautiful statue. 
and, re and he reveals his will not only for Nebuchadnezzar, but for all of human history in this one dream. The statue had different parts made of different materials, as you'll see. It had a head of gold, a chest of arms and silver, a belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet of iron and clay. And that is sort of a drawing that you can see up there uh, as what it might have looked like in Daniel's dream. <clears throat> and at the end of his dream, this enormous statue, picture maybe Nebuchadnezzar being about as tall as one of the toes. That's how big it is. It's enormous. This enormous statue um, is crushed at the base at its feet by this enormous rock, uncut, taken out of a mountain, uncut, unformed by human hands, so sort of like a natural sort of boulder, and it comes barreling down to the feet and crushes the entire statue, grinding it up as, as chaff and blowing it away into nothing. And then this rock becomes a mountain and fills the entire earth, so mountain, Mount Earth, right? It's very interesting, this dream, and this is the dream that's terrifying. What's going on here? Why, why do I keep having this dream? No doubt he saw himself somehow being in the statue and coming to an end, right? But he didn't fully understand what it was all about. The first thing that we're given here so that we can understand what this dream means is that, that um, the head of gold is identified as Nebuchadnezzar himself. Nebuchadnezzar representing what is the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian Empire is the empire that you see here on this map. That's that grayed part is about the landmass that they controlled at the time. Nebuchadnezzar ruled all over that portion of the Middle East. You can see where it says Crete and Cyprus. That's the Mediterranean Sea right there. Then you see Egypt below it with the Nile River. That hopefully all that makes sense. But that's the Middle East, so that grade area, that would be like modern day, sort of like Iraq and Iran and those sorts of places. That was the amount of, of land mass that, that Nebuchadnezzar ruled over. He, he basically took it by force from all the other kingdoms that existed at the time. So Nebuchadnezzar is called the king of kings, quote, in our text, because his, his kingdom was the largest by far in the world at the time. He's called the king of kings, and the Babylonian empire is this first superpower, the head of gold. But they're, def they're replaced by the chest and arms of silver, the Babylonians are eventually conquered by, the, the, by what we call the Medo-Persian Empire in 539 BC. And we see this typified in the statue's chest and arms of silver. Scripture says that they're weaker than the former, yet they came to dominate the ancient world for a longer period of time than Nebuchadnezzar. For 200 years, the Medo-Persian Empire controlled that swath of land. You can see how vast that is. But then eventually, the Medo-Persians are conquered or replaced by the belly and thighs of bronze. The Medo-Persian Empire was, con was conquered by the Greeks, who would, quote, rule over the whole earth, in our text in verse, thir verse 39. Their kingdom extended as far east as, as India itself. Isn't that incredible? At, under the leadership of Alexander the Great, they conquered the Medo-Persian Empire between 534 and 530 BC. They won a decisive victory over King Darius, the king of the Persians, at the Battle of Isis. And now Greece had, had emerged onto the world scene as the new superpower, and they took it by force and blood. 
You know, Alex, Alexander the Great, while he was still in his, imagine this, he's still in his 20s. And he, and he begins, it's recorded that he begins to weep because there was nothing left to conquer. That's how powerful and how quick Alexander the Great conquered the world. So vast was their empire that Greek, the language, replaced Aramaic, remember we talked about this before, as the world's common language, and the whole, all of Europe and the Middle East became what they call Hellenized, that is Greekified, right? They, were all, they all learned about Greek culture, they all became Greek. <clears throat> our modern world, and friends, to this day, um, our, our, our modern world has been affected by Alexander the Great and Greek culture. Our modern world's democracy, our philosophy of government, our art and philosophy can all be traced with a straight line back to the Greeks. It's fascinating. There's this connection. You getting this so far? There's this authority that these kingdoms have over the world, this influence. And it sort of wraps its fingers around the globe and says, you're mine. Right? So all of this power and influence. And then finally... The Greeks are followed by this fourth kingdom, which is described as having legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. This we know to be the Roman Empire, the empire that was ruling, by the way, at the time of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The Roman emperor conquered Greece officially at the Battle of Actium when Augustus defeated Cleopatra. <clears throat> iron shatters everything. It's strong. It's a strong metal. The Roman Empire was stronger and more destructive than any empire prior. And you can see they, they moved more west than east and controlled most of what we would call modern-day Europe. Okay? Yet the, the Roman Empire in our text would fracture and divide. Their feet are made of clay and iron. It's weak. By the way, in the first century, about a little after the life of Jesus, there was this man named Josephus. And Josephus wrote basically a history of Israel. A lot of what we know about the history of Israel after the Bible, the Old Testament Bible ends, comes from Josephus, right? He interprets Daniel's dream just like this. He says the head of gold is the Babylonian empire, right? And describes the rest as we did. And this is important. The reason this is important is because it, it's telling as to what the people of Israel would have believed at the time about the Roman Empire. In their minds, the Roman Empire is the legs. They're that last great empire that's going to be crushed when our Messiah comes. So when Jesus came, they didn't want, they didn't want a savior of their sin. They wanted a political conqueror. And when Jesus showed himself not to be a political conqueror, but a savior, they killed him. Right? They were expecting, based on Daniel's vision, a fifth kingdom. And by the way, it's coming. Just not yet. <clears throat> Verse 44. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will sell itself will endure forever. 
This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. Friends, we know how the story of human history ends. It has been revealed to us, according to Daniel chapter 2 and verse 45, the great God has shown us what will take place in the future. The Bible tells us here that there is going to be a time the Roman Empire is sort of replaced by a plurality of kings. The ten toes and the feet, right? That's what, it, that's what it's sort of envisioning. A world that's not, that's not ruled by one kingdom, but a multiplicity of kingdoms. Sort of like our world today. And when, when the world is ruled not by just one king, but many, a rock comes to crush. Friends, when we see this rock crushing the statue, we shouldn't see this as something that's happened already, but something that is yet to take place. The text itself says it. It will take place in the future, and we know it hasn't happened yet because, big surprise, there isn't one mountain filling the whole earth yet. There are kings yet to be displaced. Because the kingdom of man continues to rule, there is a time yet to come. Our world's superpowers are diverse, yet in the same pride, our world continues to be ruled by kings that do not know God, love, or follow him. Israel's Messiah, the rock, uncut by human hands. In other words, a kingdom not of this earth. Have you heard this before? My kingdom is not of this earth. Jesus identified himself as Daniel's rock. I am he. First Peter chapter 2. See, I lay a stone in Zion, the stone the builders rejected, has become the chief cornerstone. And this is our Messiah, Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 8. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Friends, Jesus' kingdom is coming. He, his kingdom is coming. God is sovereign over kings and over nations and over governments. But the better king, the better nation, the better government is coming. He gave Nebuchadnezzar his power, and then he gave it to the Persians, and then he gave it to the Greeks, and then he gave it to the Romans, and so on. Until he comes. His purpose is earthly. He's moving these human kings, and he's eventually going to displace them, and his kingdom is going to fill the whole earth so that heaven isn't some, somewhere far away in a galaxy far, far away and some sort of kind of nebula, spiritual type of thing, the Bible says that God's kingdom, heaven, eternal life, takes up ownership of this world. Isn't that great? Revelation chapter 20 describes this event. It interprets Daniel chapter 2. Revelation 20, 11, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war, and on his head are many crowns. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. This is Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, John chapter 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is Jesus Christ. 
He is dressed in a robe dripped in blood, and his name is the word of God. Before he comes to, to take back the earth that is his, he came to save his people. His robe is dipped with blood, right? He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. You see, you might not believe that Jesus is the coming king, the mountain that fills the earth, but Jesus believed it. His disciples believed it. The Bible makes it very clear that, we, that it, it interprets Christ as the rock in Daniel's dream. And he is coming. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Oh, that's tough. Because in our minds, we always talk about Jesus as being sort of like really friendly. Forgiving, gracious, merciful. Oh, and he is friends. But he is only gracious and merciful to those whose blood he has covered whose sins are forgiven. To remain in sin is to be the object of the coming rock. The destructive point. Why do you think Nebuchadnezzar was so terrified? Because he wasn't on the rock's side, he was on the statue's side. And we need to jump off the statue and jump onto the rock, right? On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name that is written. King of kings, Lord of lords. Oh, wow. Daniel just said, you, Nebuchadnezzar, oh, you are king of kings. What is he talking about? In other words, he's got more authority than all the other kings of the earth. They work for him. They're like client nations that really submit to him. Now Jesus is being called the king of kings, the Lord of lords of all the universe, right? The kings of the earth are no longer the centerpiece of human history. You see, for a little bit, for a little while, the kingdoms of the earth are the dream. They're the vision. That's all we see. But then the dream shifts. A rock comes, smashes it to smithereens, and then a mountain fills the whole earth. And then all of a sudden, the language changes from Aramaic to Hebrew, right? And now, we're not looking at the kingdoms of this world. We thought that's all there was. But it's actually Christ's. It's actually his world. And we need to submit and to surrender to his authority. The kings of the earth are no longer the centerpiece of human history. They step aside for the real king for the fifth kingdom. The ungodly are not so, it says in chapter 1. But they are like the chaff which the wind carries away from the face of the earth. Therefore the ungodly shall not be able to stand in the judgment and the, the sad and sorry news of, of our human plight is that we have all, there are none good, no, not one. We are all ungodly. But Christ makes us right with him so that we're the righteousness of Christ. And then in Psalm 2, I have set my king on the holy hill of Zion. He said to me, you, you are my only begotten son. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance and the utmost parts of the world as your possession. Oh, friends, the rock is coming, and he's taking back what's his. Whose side are you on? Are you the nose on the statue? Are you the toenail? 
Are you the fingers? Oh, friends, Daniel wasn't afraid because he was part of the mountain and not the statue. Oh, friends, we need to come to Christ. There is no doubt this dream represents the successive rulership of human history. And it will all be blown away like chaff. <sighs> all of it. One day, Washington, D.C. is going to be stormed by another king. Oh, that's a controversial thing to say right now. I'm not saying I agree with what happened before, okay? Just chill out. But one day, Jesus, this, we don't get to rule the earth. He does. He's going to take it back, and he's going to do it right. Amen? And this message is what brought the most powerful king on earth to his knees. It says Nebuchadnezzar dropped to his knees when he understood and he realized, oh, I am just another person. Verse 21, God moves kings and he raises them up and removes them. What side are you on? The statues or the stones? The mountain or the head of gold? Nebuchadnezzar was afraid because he was, on, he was that, the golden head that was about to be blown away as chaff. But Daniel was confident because he was, the, he was with the rock. He was with the mountain. Who are you with, friend? The first century Jews forgot that before the Messiah came to conquer, he came to save because he loves us. And unless we want to come under the fierce force of the rock and the wrath of God, we must come to him in repentant faith to be holy like him. He's coming quickly and he is holy and he is not playing games. So we need to respond a little bit here like this pagan despot, Nebuchadnezzar. We need to drop to our knees. We need to surrender all of our little kingdoms to him and confess him as Lord and Savior, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell before Daniel and said, Surely your God is the Lord of Kings. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we know that Jesus, our Lord, is King and he is coming quickly. So I pray that we would take heart and that we would remember those, wide, those wide, wise words that were spoken hundreds of years ago by a little man named Andrew Melville to the king of England, James I, when he said, O oh, king, there are two kings and two king kingdoms in Scotland. There is you, King James, Lord of the Commonwealth, and there is King Jesus, Lord of the church, Lord of the universe. And, O oh, King, you are his subject, as are we. His kingdom <clears throat> is not yours. You are not the head of it. Oh, we will yield to you your place, but you cannot give us eternal life, and you cannot take it from us. So, God, I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't put our hope in kings, but our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that if there's anyone that doesn't know um, Christ as Lord and Savior this morning, that they would turn to him in repentant faith and trust him <coughs> as their Lord and Savior. Friend, cry out to God. God. You are the rock. You are the king that fills the whole earth. It's your kingdom in my life that I need, not my own kingdom. Oh, I pray, Lord, save me from my sin. If that's you, friends, God is turning your heart to him. 
I, I pray that you would come and tell us so that we can rejoice with you. God, bless the rest of our, our time together. Thank you that Jesus Christ, our Lord, is our rescuer. In Jesus' name, amen.